I think if one is conscious and one is working on themselves, then everything serves you. And you realize that, which actually removes some of the pain. Like, oh God, I'm in this bad situation. Like, oh no, I'm in this situation. You know, like you take the adjective off the front of it. Even like, I'm in this great situation. Look how smart I am. You take the great out. You're like, I'm in this situation. What do I make of it? And it neutralizes some of the energetic charge of these experiences. Christopher Celeste has helped to bring ideas to life and politics, advertising, technology, and real estate, coaching both colleagues and clients along the way. He currently divides his time between Ohio and Martha's Vineyard, where he is a shopkeeper, ally, writer, and proud OPA. Christopher's a really dear friend, and we just have a wonderful conversation, as we always do. It's a joy to be able to record it and share it, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. All right, we are here in person in the studio with my good, dear friend, Christopher Celeste. And this feels overdue, but it's right on time. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy to be with you and have this conversation. Well, I feel lucky to be with you as always. And uh, this time people will listen in. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll kind of go to the beginning and tell your story, but I'm just thinking, I don't know, this popped in my head, how we met mm-hmm. and just the connectivity and just how much has come of knowing each other and how good it is to have a close friend, somebody that, that really understands me and that is that we're able to have really deep conversation about anything. But yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to reflect that to you as I'm sitting here getting ready to get into this conversation before we just fall into this format. I'm like, I love Christopher and I'm so <laughs> glad that we're friends and that I've had you in my life. Well, you know, I, feeling is mutual. And I do think from the very first time we got together, it felt like we were talking about real things. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a conversation about accomplishment and the weather and what was going on in, in our social circles. It, I think it really got real relatively quickly and it stayed that way. And I think you're right, especially with men and men who are on a journey and ambitious and trying to figure themselves out at the same time to have company that you can check in with, that you don't feel like you have to you know be there all the time. But when you're together, it immediately is genuine and intimate and meaningful. That's powerful. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly feel that way about this relationship. And we're sort of sitting in, in one of the neighborhoods that was manifested mm. by some of that early energy. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of fun in a full circle. Mm. As yeah. Well as we begin. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll come back to that because I want to share the story of how we came together and what has come as a result of that, including sitting here in this space of gravity. But I just want to pick up on what you said, you know, the idea of men, but it's really important for women and for everybody to have people that they can share their truth with Mm -hmm. and the human experience, the journey, because we all are having a similar journey and there's commonality in there somewhere at a minimum. And it's very helpful to be able to 
share that and to get guidance and to get advice and to commiserate or or inspire. And that's part of the reason that I have this podcast is because I have always loved and been fascinated with the experience of being human. Mm -hmm. And I had never really thought about it in terms of being a man, but that's its own unique experience. And having friends to discuss it with is certainly important. Well, I think men socialize differently than women generally. That's a generalization, but I think a fair one. And so I think to get to an emotional life with men versus kind of what's happening on the surface, a whole lot of activity. Mm -hmm. Um, We tend to get busy with each other, but not real. And I think women get real faster than men with one another. Again, a generalization. Mm -hmm. But I do think you're right. I mean, as human beings, we're social creatures. And yet, in some ways, we live inside our heads. And so we feel alone almost all the time. And that way, when you meet somebody who you feel seen by and who recognizes your truth and recognizes you don't have to agree about that, they have their truth, you have your truth, but they see that in you. It's very affirming, and I think it allows that social part of us as human beings to feel the connection we need, the communal thing, Mm -hmm. rather than sort of shrinking further into our own head and our own little world and set of worries or set of ambitions. And Mm -hmm. in that way, I think it helps us grow. And so, again, to have relationships like this is really powerful. And it isn't with everybody. Even you, you can have other people you really like and other people you enjoy being around, but there are occasionally people who, with whom you just feel a kind of intimacy. And I'm grateful when that happens. Yeah, me too. And I'm thinking about how you've arrived mm-hmm. at your belief system and your way of being. And I know from being friends with you, there's a lot of work that's gone into that. It's been a evolving process and and maybe your entire life has led you to the place that you're at. We were talking before we started how you're in a good place. right? And so let's back up and talk about your journey to this place that you're in today, that you're feeling good about in the moment. Tell me from the beginning, you know, what was it like to be Christopher? Talk about your family, the dynamics of being a child Mm -hmm. in your home. Mm -hmm. Well, I was born in India. So I was born in New Delhi, India. I'm the second oldest of six in my primary family. My father and mother met in England. My father was a Rhodes Scholar. My mother had come from Vienna as a young woman to learn English. So she was 20 and my father was a little older, a couple of years older. They fell in love quickly, got married even quicker, and then came back to the States, started having kids. And then my father got recruited to go to India. And so I was born someplace other than this place. And as I've gotten older, I do think there's power and energetic power in terms of where we arrived into this world. I've been back to India many times. So that's a a beginning thread that I didn't recognize until maybe 30 years later when I when I went back as an adult. But I so I was born in, in a different country in a large what became a large family. And my father's work was politics. And so when he came back to the States in Ohio, he ran for office and he had a very successful political career. And so we grew up inside of this family business that was public that also had private and secret parts to it. 
Mm-hmm. And we grew up inside a sibling dynamic, six siblings with two very busy parents, brilliant, but busy. And so a lot of time spent with each other, which was both good and bad in terms of, you know, you're tr- trying to raise yourself and raise each other and you're just children and you don't really know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that, that early part of childhood had its own trauma. There are you know, certainly stories specifically to, that I could tell about that. And it had its own kind of uniqueness because here we were in this family that was moving around a lot because of politics. It was public. It got exposed to lots of things. And so there was a lot to process and no one to process it with mm-hmm. for a while. Okay, let's unpack that a bit. But I want to start with something you said about where you were born mm-hmm. and that feeling that you came to understand 30 years later. Talk a little bit about that, this origin or the, you know, whatever right. conditioning, whatever it was that kind of got in in those very early pre-verbal years that you are connecting now as an adult? Well, first of all, you know, I'm a little woo-woo. So, I mean, I think we're all energy and we just get put back together in energy at different times. So clearly my energy was somewhere else and it got put back, it got put together and arrived in this place called India, which is ancient is very um, multidimensional, lots of different religions. It's really the largest democracy on the planet, but very, very diverse. And it has a caste system. You know, it has all these sort of dynamics to it that are different than this country. And um, my parents even then were busy. And so I was raised in part, I had you know, full-time attention from a caregiver, both my brother and I, and then my sister who was also born in India. And so we were taken care of by folks who were Indian and there were probably routines in that, ways we were treated as children that were different than the three siblings who came after us and were born in the States. When I went back to India and I was old enough to understand some of these traditions, I think I just sensed that there was something inside of me that was that started there, a calmness, a groundedness that I didn't recognize when I was in the States as a young person. I can't explain it more than that because Mm -hmm. it was Mm pre-verbal. But I do now, like I've gone to India many times and some of the practices that I engage in obviously have their roots or have variations that, that come from those places. And I've been to different parts of India with my own children. And yeah, I just think I believe in energy and I think the energy is in different places and I think there are energetic centers. And that is for me both uh, geographically and then in terms of my own emotional upbringing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an energy place. Yeah, that makes sense. I I wasn't born there, but I spent a summer in Israel when I was a teenager and had the same sense of, you know, there's some sort of real energetic feeling of, I don't know, feels like to be somewhere that you feel really drawn to, connected to. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an embodied energetic experience. So that's... Yeah, I think we think of ourselves as independent because we look and we're like, I'm not connected to anybody else. I just move around the way I want to move around. But really, we're energy. The energy is part of a universe of energy, life happening and unfolding. And I do think there are places where you plug in whether you realize it or not. Mm -hmm. People with whom you plug in, going back to our conversation about intimate relationships, and it feeds you. It feeds you energetically. And 
if you're paying attention, you get it. And you're like, mm, yeah, I'm going to come back to this spot. If you're not paying attention, you just have this sense of like, oh, that, that I feel really refreshed or I feel like that. I feel lighter. I mean, there's a feeling you have. But if you have consciousness along with it, so then you begin to understand, oh, that's available, available to me. Like I can actually develop a practice to tap into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, and I like how you say, you know, you plug in. The places that you plug in you know, people plug into all different kinds of places, you know? I mean, some people like to, I don't know, golf in the Carolinas or something, right? And some people like to ski in the mountains. And, you know, even within that, there's variety in what Mm -hmm. feels right. And yet there seems to be something for me, at least, and I think for you too, there's a spiritual sense to that energy that feels important, right? It's not about like, well, I can do my hobbies here. Right. It's there's something more connected than that. Yeah. I think piece of it for me, and again, I everything I, I believe, I believe for me. It's my truth. I don't mistake it for the truth. I don't expect it to be your truth, but it's my truth. And for me, a piece of that plugging in is the opposite of activity. It's stillness. It's in if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're in a conversation with somebody and you really got to the root of things. It doesn't feel busy. It feels like everything else has stopped and you're talking to this person and they're getting you and there's flow going back and forth. There are words happening, but there's more than that because of that. And that is a kind of stillness that I think of as spirituality. It's true. We plug in lots of different ways, but a lot of those ways we plug in, I think sometimes we mistake as a source, but in some respects, and and we get a feeling out of them. Mm -hmm. But it's a kind of busyness. Mm. And I do think that there is such an exponential power awaiting us in stillness, in conscious engagement in that stillness and presence in that stillness. And culturally, we haven't figured out how to help people to plug into that. I mean, I know it's one of the things that you personally are committed to and mm-hmm. you're working on and, and gravity as a, as a community encourages that in all sorts of different types of, I mean, there are activities designed to take you to that place. Mm -hmm. And there are places like nature or forest bathing or, Mm -hmm. you know, some of these other things where stillness is waiting Mm -hmm. all the time. So I do think that's a piece of what I felt plugged into when I returned to India. It's a piece of what I feel plugged into when I'm doing my practice, Mm -hmm. sitting on my couch or whatever. Yeah, maybe we'll come back around to that because I think there's a lot there just philosophically to talk about that might be helpful for people. I want to come back to the childhood and this dynamic with your siblings, with your parents, your father being in very public political positions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just thinking to myself, Katie and has told me stories of playing quarters on the governor's desk with <laughs> Natalie and like, uh, who knows what was going on in those days, right? But um, a, lot going on. a lot going on and <laughs> and a lot of fun and it was probably exciting. But, you know, you talked about this, this child, mm-hmm. these children that were in some ways, at some points, you know, maybe more than that it's supposed to be, raising themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I love my parents and I've come to terms with my parents as brilliant and accomplished and lovable people. And yet they were deeply flawed as parents in terms of their primary, the parental responsibility of creating a nurturing and safe environment for their children to grow up in. 
they created a dynamic and interesting environment. We had a million different experiences that my mother will say, well, you turned out fine. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> I did. You're, you're right. I'm okay. And, I'm, and it's not that I'm not grateful for all of that, but there is a kind of benign neglect that can occur when you have very, very busy parents and children. And you, you, know, you sort of put them someplace and say, they'll be fine. But they're not coach. You can't like put them in the co-check and come back with your ticket and get them later. Mm-hmm. Things are happening in the co-check room. Mm-hmm. And things were happening among my siblings in terms of the way in which we behaved with each other and how we were to each other and, and that were sometimes good and sometimes bad. Being a child trying to parent your younger siblings is, is really challenging, especially when your own role model for parenting isn't particularly good. And, you know, I used to say like my first experience of leadership was being an older sibling in my family. And I was mistaken in thinking, well, I'm the leader of this family. Like they got to pay attention to me. Mm -hmm. I'm in charge. They pay attention to me. That's leadership. Mm -hmm. And really the point of being a leader is to pay attention to the other people, but, you know, not to try to control them, which is what an adolescent does to their younger siblings, but to actually be present for them and take care of them. Um, so e- even like later in life, as I reflected on my own leadership development, I could go all the way back to that time as an adolescent in, in the sibling dynamic and say, hey, I was asked to lead and I failed at it because I thought they were supposed to be paying attention to me and I actually was supposed to be paying attention to them. So they were even in the dysfunction of it, there are wonderful lessons because I made it safely to the other side. Not everybody makes it safely to the other side of a traumatic childhood. You know, there were other sort of specific things. My mother was a child of World War II. She, her father was conscripted by the Nazis when they came through Austria. He was forced to join their army. He was sent off to Italy. He was a translator. After translating for a while and realizing every time he translated, somebody got hung in the town square, he decided he didn't want to do that. And he went AWOL. And after the war, he was still in Italy. In Vienna, where my mother and her young daughter and her, and her mother, my grandmother, were, was divided into three parts, Russian-occupied, British-occupied, U.S.-occupied. And my mother grew up in Russian-occupied Vienna, which was not a nice place for her mother, who was raped repeatedly by occupying soldiers. And so my mother grew up in this very traumatic kind of environment. When my grandfather eventually came home, the Marshall Plan was out. And one of the things they did is they took the oldest child in a family because these children were malnourished and sent them someplace to be fattened up and looked after. And so my mother was the oldest child and she was sent to Italy, ironically. And she lived with a woman who was a doctor, which was unusual at that time. And she had a fabulous experience. She went for a year and then she would go back every summer. So fast forward to us, my mother has six kids. She has her parents living in Vienna and she decides the thing she's going to do is send her kids to Vienna. So when we were in kindergarten, one by one, she would get on a plane with us. She'd fly to Vienna. She'd take us to her parents' home. She'd leave us there and come back a year later. Well, culturally, that's lovely to be with your grandparents in Vienna for a year. But as a five or six-year-old trying to process, hold on, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Where am I? What's this language? How, How do I make sense of this? And for me, it was very, it, I realized it was very traumatic. It was a sense of abandonment and that, that childhood sense of abandonment, which probably led to me always constantly looking for attachment and wanting to 
do whatever was necessary to make sure that I was valuable. I became a very good codependent, taking care of people around mm-hmm. me as, as a result of that. And so there are various little stories like that. That's one. There's, you know, the experience we had growing up now, you know, I got to be in Vienna and I got to go into the Vienna woods with my grandmother and go mushroom hunting and explore castles and go on train trips through Europe. And yet I was also a five-year-old mm-hmm. who had been left for a year. And when I returned to Cleveland, where we were living at the time, I couldn't even speak English. Mm-hmm. My brother was a big Star Trek fan. He would play these games where he was Mr. Spock and friends were Captain Kirk and I was the alien because mm-hmm. I couldn't speak English. So <laughs> my, my German was whatever the alien language was. You figure it out as a child because you're resilient and your life is moving you forward anyhow. But later in life, you start unpacking that stuff mm-hmm. and you realize it's, it's ground in you. You're never going to get it out. Yeah. I'm curious about the belief around your parents, mm-hmm. you know, having shared that and being a parent yourself mm-hmm. and, you know, arriving at the place that you have come to love and respect and see the, the good and the bad and your parents, but then, you know, kind of in hindsight, looking back and saying, boy, that probably wasn't what the five-year-old needed. Or there was a number of things there that, you know, you don't think was good parenting. Right. And so I'm kind of curious about, you know, hearing the story about your mother and her mother and the history, I've kind of landed on we're always doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious where you are with that, you know, knowing how hard it is to be a parent and how we are trying to do the best we can. But I don't know if you fast forward 10, 15, 20 years down the road and, and maybe you're already there where you ask your kids, well, how did we do? Right, right. And they'll let you know. And it's probably not as, as good <laughs> well, as they, they would have liked. And talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, here's what I'd say. First of all, I began that story saying I was a bad parent to my own siblings. Like mm. I did not, it took me a long time to understand how to be present and patient and purposeful in the way in which I interacted with people who were in my care. Instead of needing to control situations, thinking I had such a good right answer that if you just listen to me, come on, just listen to me and I will get you to where you need to go. Instead of recognizing that every one of these people, especially children, but if you're leading a group of people too, is an independent living person, it's unlike any other living person you've ever encountered and they have their truth. And the real work is to see their truth. And then once you understand their truth, try to figure out how you help them navigate through whatever the situation is, whether they're a child in adolescence or early adulthood who you're trying to help navigate, if it's a colleague, if it's a partner, whatever that is. That takes a tremendous amount of consciousness. It takes a purposefulness and intentionality that is about them, not you. And again, I think my parents did what my parents did. I wouldn't say that everybody's always doing the best they can. I'd say everybody's always doing what they're doing. And it's important to understand why. Like if you're trying to draw a judgment about them, if they're somebody you love, they're your family and you're, you're in relationship with them, then of course you look at the circumstances and you come to whatever conclusion you might. Maybe they were in fact doing the best they could. 
Or maybe they could have done better if they had paid attention. Maybe they could have done better if they had thought about the other people around them instead of just themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That doesn't mean I don't love them today, but you know, I don't have to have it all just be tied up in a beautiful little ribbon for me to love them. Mm -hmm. like, because I know that I'm completely flawed as a parent myself. I mean, I, you know, I initiated my own divorce. I've created disruption in my children's lives. I've behaved in ways that were totally counterproductive in situations. And so, and I don't expect them to say, well, you know, you did the best you can. Yeah. I expect them hopefully to give me enough time in their lives that eventually they love me anyhow. I do think there's one other thing though that you and I have talked about in the past that is a unique thing with our parents, which is they are points of reference for us forever. And I think for me, especially son and father, public father, very accomplished father, I used to say, you know, he would come into a room and basically suck all the oxygen out. And so everybody was like, <gasps> you know, mm -hmm. like the governor's here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Dick Celeste is here. Look how smart and charming and whatever. And the truth is my mother is equally brilliant. In fact, my mother might be smarter than my father. And she speaks multiple languages and she's done amazing things in her lives. It just hasn't been in these celebrated work environments. Both of them were points of challenging points of comparison as a child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, later in life, I realized, hey, if you compare and compete, it actually is a kind of sickness. You don't need to compare and compete with anybody. That's counterproductive, I think, to being like a fulfilled and happy human being. But that's another conversation. Mm -hmm. But in particular with parents and for me growing up, I spent my entire childhood with these sort of twin sons that I'm trying to get in into the warmth and the, the light that they generated. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, were busy and distracted. And mm -hmm. so there was a lot of activity trying to stand out to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then just beyond my childhood, like in that early adulthood, a lot of energy trying to be like them, mm -hmm. be liked by them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. be seen like them. Yeah. And where was I in all of that? It yeah. took me a long time, you know, to come to the point of like, hold on a second. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that childhood stuff carried. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that you've done a lot of work to be able to be more aware of it and to find who am I and how do I want to be in the world and, and live. But even then, it's something that you probably constantly have to catch and pay attention oh, to because yeah. it's sneaky. I want to just come back to the thing about always doing our best because I, it's not that I'm putting that in a pretty bow. I, and I do believe that someone's best could be better. Mm -hmm. So it gets a little right. slippery, right? Well, if, then they're not really doing their best if it could be better. But I get stuck right at, well, then why didn't they? Why didn't they do better? And so then I come back around to, I guess that was their best. And for me, I have really uh, landed in this place because that's all I can really make sense of. Mm -hmm. And I do think about the generational conditioning that had your mother and father wanting to be busy doing what they were doing for all the reasons, whatever they were, I don't know, and maybe you do. Mm -hmm. And the same then for you and I, right? You know, you mentioned some things that you would have done differently that you hope your kids understand. Well, then why didn't you? Well, because in the, at the moment, you were doing what you thought was best. 
Were you not? I don't know. I mean, I think personal responsibility that for me that has required me to say, is that really true? And my answer is no. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing my best. So, so really like, uh, I want to hear more about that. If you, you look back and there's certain decisions that you made that you think had you really tapped into and for some reason you didn't, you could have done better. Yeah, I, and I don't want to mistake, like to me, it's not a judgment. I, I don't mean that in a way to be judgmental about um, my parents or myself. I believe in the idea that of forgiveness. I don't believe anybody's their worst moment. Um, I don't think that's how people should be judged in general. And I think there are a lot of people who are suffering and in pain and it limits what they're capable of. I think all of that, to your point, like you can look at that and you, you discover something about why somebody made a decision they did in that moment, a parent or whomever, and you're like, oh, okay, well, that explains some things. It explains some things, but it doesn't change the fact that it's available to all of us all the time to be working on ourselves. And I think if you're not choosing to be working on yourself, well, then that's on you. I think we need to now as a culture Stop saying that, hey, you're working on accumulation, you're working on accomplishment, you're working on getting your grades up, you're working on all this other kind of stuff. I think it's time to say, hey, it's resp- you're responsible for you. That's the beginning and really in some respects the end. And if you're working on yourself mm-hmm. constantly, then you're going to show up in these situations differently. And I think the only way to change that kind of cultural norm is, and I know you don't, you're not saying it this way. I, I understand the nuance of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But like they were doing the best they could in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so I can't hold it against them. And I'm not holding, I mean, I have very honest and open conversations with my parents. I'm lucky they're both still alive in their 80s. That's a gift because you can process all this stuff mm-hmm. at each different stage of your own development mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and return to it. And certainly I was a self-righteous and judgmental 20-year-old about my parents. Mm-hmm. And that's not how I feel in my 50s. Mm-hmm. But I do think, I think it's time for us to say, hey, we have a responsibility for how we lead ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and if we're conscious of that, then it's going to show up in our relationships with people, mm-hmm. especially the people we love. Yeah. I think that's a really important point to land on on that topic is that it should assume that you're working on yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just go around saying, oh, well, I'm doing the best I can and sorry about all the damage I'm leaving behind me. I mean, if you are trying to really look at it and improve and really get towards some better version, yeah, then you know that I think gives a lot more grace for maybe the imperfections or the mistakes along the way. I've got two questions in my mind just based on where we're at. One, and you can go wherever you want to go with this. We'll probably get to all of it. Who were you Mm -hmm. being? And then did you have a sense as to who you really were? You know, who was the I am that was trying to please the parents and who, and what did that look like? And, And what was the truth of you if you had any sense of what that was at the time? And then the other question is really about how all of it served you and and maybe you know that plays out over time but i wanted to just maybe hear from you these parts that were not maybe how they were supposed to be right right the kid that wasn't getting what it needed and then consequently you know what happens 
But you do eventually get to a point where that has some serve that that benefits you to some degree too, having had that experience, oh, yeah. right? So I don't know. Go wherever you want. Well, I, first of all, to, to start where you ended, I think if one is conscious and one is working on themselves, then everything serves you, and you realize that, which actually removes some of the pain. Like, oh God, I'm in this bad situation. You're like, oh no, I'm in this situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like you take the adjective off the front of it. Even like, I'm in this great situation. Look how smart I am. You take the great out. You're like, I'm in this situation. Mm-hmm. What do I make of it? And it neutralizes some of the energetic charge of these experiences. And then if, once you have that tool, I think, and you look backward at your life, you can reevaluate things you thought were settled law. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to re-rule on that. Mm-hmm. You know, it turns out that wasn't that way. I right. take that energetic charge off. But for me, the person I thought I was or the mm-hmm. person I was trying to be coming out of my childhood was informed both by this comparison thing with my parents, this competing thing with my siblings for attention and time. Mm-hmm. And then my mother was Catholic. And so I was raised in the Catholic church. And for whatever reason, I just saw the black and white of it. And I remember at one point in my childhood, my mother gave me this book of stories of the saints. And the inscription in the front was, so you could be perfect. Mm. And so the other piece in my mind was, oh, I'm supposed to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Of course, I knew I wasn't. So from the very beginning, I'm living this lie, which is tormenting me. Like any thought I have as a, as a young boy or man that's impure, like, oh, well, say I'm not perfect, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to behave in ways to the outside world where I am the epitome of this sort of perfect young man. And so I tried very hard to be my father. I spoke like my, I sound like my father to begin with. So mm-hmm. People say, oh, you sound like your father. You look like your father. You know, I started working politics. He was wearing a a certain kind of suit. That was the kind of suit I was going to wear. It became an exercise in emulating the people I admired or the, this sort of perfect role I thought I was supposed to be as a man, like a thoughtful feminist guy. When I was at college, I was like the friend to all the women. I just had this projection of who I was going to be. And I was going to be this like shiny, perfect person. Of course, inside I was tormented. And there were parts of that that were really me, that Mm -hmm. aren't really me. Mm -hmm. But it was all skewed in this projection, which was really about emulating other people versus embodying my true self. Mm -hmm. Later, I could take out of that mix, oh, this characteristic and this thing and that thing and this piece, this value system, that is, in fact, you. This other performance, that's performance art. Mm -hmm. And now you can just sort of embody these traits that are you without worrying what anybody thinks. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing I've found to figure out what's what in all Mm -hmm. of that, right? You know, it's changing. Well, it's changing and it's also like, in my case, I think I became the nice guy, (laughs) the guy that wanted people to like them. Mm -hmm. And I found that, you know, by being nice to people or doing things for people or doing what people wanted, a whole bunch of flavors of that, that had people like me. Mm -hmm. Now, I like helping people. I like having people feel good, getting something out of something that I'm offering them. But it's a tricky thing to figure out, well, how much of me is just somebody who 
likes to be nice and likes to help people because that's who I am in my heart, which does feel very true and aligned. And how much of it is still got some attachment to, you know, wanting to be liked. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny. I mean, see, you and I, this is why we connect. Like, (laughs) I I was the nice guy. In fact, I've I've written poetry my whole life, but I remember when I was at at Denison, I wrote this poem called The Nice Guy about how the nice guy's a nice guy, but really doesn't get, in the end, he's left pulling the bag because people just kind of want to be with the cool, dangerous Mm -hmm. guys and the nice guys, the one who picks things up. And so I was resentful even of being the nice guy that I was. And I had the same challenge of teasing apart. What does it mean to be of service? And what does it mean to be a servant? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean to make yourself a servant of other people for what it gets you versus to just naturally want to be of service? And I think that is a hard thing to figure out. Mm -hmm. You know, when are you looking in the mirror to check your hair? And when are you looking in the mirror to see how handsome you are Mm -hmm. because there are mirrors all around us. There are relationships all around us that we're engaged in. And you could spend all day trying to figure out that I do that because I was just wanting to get that smile from the cashier when Mm -hmm. I went to the checkout line Mm -hmm. and said, how was your day? Or thank you so much. Or you look terrific. Or all the little acts of kindness I think we can do. Am I doing that because I want something back? Or is that just me practicing my habit of kindness, Mm -hmm. my habit of gratitude, my habit of being Nice. Mm-hmm. At some point, I've stopped asking myself that. I understand for myself, at least, that my intention is in that respect is pure. My mm-hmm. intention is to express gratitude, mm-hmm. to, to say the thing or do the thing that maybe makes somebody feel like, oh, that was a good moment in my day. It doesn't take a lot to do that. And so yeah. I have the intentionality of doing that. Yeah. I do think you eventually figure it out. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of, again, it's more of a feeling an embodied experience when you know what sincerely is just an expression of gratitude or a desire to be supportive and helpful to somebody that you care about versus wanting something else out of it. You, you, you can eventually, I think, differentiate and make more conscious choices. But I think it's hard to come to that early in our lives because most of our youth, mm-hmm. we're taught to focus on outcomes. We're not really taught to focus on intentions. One of the few places where you are taught about intentionality is probably in, a, in, a, in some kind of spiritual or religious practice. But when we're kids, so much of that feels forced on us. Mm-hmm. We almost are naturally like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Right. So some of it seeps in and later we're like, oh, wow, I have this service mentality. Oh, wow, I have this sense of communalness. Where did this come from? But we're so focused on being graded and getting the outcome right that we detach almost entirely from being conscious of what our intentions are. Later, if we're lucky, we can flip that whole thing on its head and we realize if we're just purposeful from the inside out, the other stuff will take care of itself. That'll arrive into our lives. It would be nice if we, if we had a, a way of teaching young people that differently mm. um, so that they could start earlier mm-hmm. not feeling so judged by the outside world. Oh man, boy, is that true. And something we just don't have right at all. It's creating a, you know, an epidemic. Yeah. And and it's been made worse in recent years. And and I'm not somebody who hates on social media, but there's no question that, you know, from a very early age, everybody has this data coming in that has them constantly measuring to something, something that's probably not real. It's just a, 
a snapshot in time. And it's problematic. And hopefully we can figure out how to get that right. I heard it yesterday in a podcast, somebody talking about how there's never been more conversation about mental health since social media became a thing. And there's never been a bigger need for the conversation because of social media. So we got to figure out how to use it right. But I want to come back to you and Mm -hmm. you comparing yourself to your dad. And I really get the visual of the suit, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's because I have a similar story being dressed in suits as a toddler and, you know, all these baby pictures of me in a suit and tie. I'm like, who puts their kid in a suit and tie, you know, but like, that's what we did. And it was because my dad had a lot of value on being a suit, you Uh know, and I don't know, maybe it was just the times, but there's something there about, you know, you wanting to talk and look and really be like your dad. And we just talked about how you eventually find the parts of you that were true in that. And then the ones that were not, Tell me a little bit about how that unfolds for you. Okay. How, how do you go about, you know, you said it's harder in the early years, right? So how did you go about your life to help you understand the, what was really true for you? Right. Well, I'll tell you that in two different ways. Like I have over time, as you know, I've thought about this a lot and I've kind of had this sense of a process that's happening, whether we recognize it or not. And I can describe that and then tell you, I think, how that showed up in my life. But I think generally, we begin our lives experiencing things practiced on us. You know, our parents put us in suits or do whatever they do to us. And and we have experiences with all kinds of different people. And some of those things resonate with us. And we're like, oh, I want to be like that. I like that. Or I don't like that. And we start copying, we emulate the experience that resonates with us. And if we never go any further, if we never ask ourselves, you know, is that really right for me? We get caught up in this loop. We experience something and we copy it. I go to this law firm. This is how they behave at the law firm. I want to get ahead of the law firm. I'm going to be like the partners. I go, you know, this is what my coach, how my coach leads people. This is how I'm going to lead people in my first job as a boss. We never get beyond that. The trick is if there's a moment of consciousness where I go, hold on a second. Okay, I've experienced this. I think I like this. I'm trying this on to use the fashion statement. Let me ask myself, does it really fit? Do I feel comfortable in this suit that I'm wearing? And if the answer is yes, then you're like, okay, now I'm going to go from experiencing this and emulating this to actually embracing it and making it my own. Okay, I'm going to wear a suit, but my suit is going to be this way. And this is what my style is. And after a while, you don't even think about it anymore. Now you're just embodying it. But you've taken this thing that you experienced that you began by just copying because that's what we do. And you consciously choose this one works, this one doesn't, this one feels right, this one doesn't. And then you begin to embrace it. And in the process of embracing it, you make it your own. It's like learning how to make lasagna. Like you start with a recipe, but then eventually you're like, no, 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 I'm going to do this. And then you don't even need any guidance. Every time you want to make that lasagna, you know exactly how to do it. You're whipping it up. Mm -hmm. That's how I think we go from being beginners to masters. But it's also how we go from being disconnected from ourselves to actually understanding and embodying who we are. For me in my life, I started in that copycat mode. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm copycatting my father. I'm copycatting anything that gives me a positive feedback that I'm being a good person. Mm-hmm. I'm being of use to people. And I thought of myself as St. Christopher, which in that tradition is the saint that carries kids across the, that carries people across the little river to safety. 
And so I had this whole notion that uh, I'm, I'm this St. Christopher carrying people around. When I got into my early years of my marriage and I had three kids very young, I had all three of my kids by the time I was 29, I married my high school sweetheart, who is a brilliant, wonderful, beautiful woman, but with whom I did not have an intimate connection and that created turmoil. And I left politics, which is what I started doing when I was copying my father, to go into advertising because that was running campaigns, just like running campaigns of politics, except they paid you in advertising. Mm. And my then wife was studying to become a doctor, so she was in school forever. So I, I was in this advertising world and I was dressing like the people there. And one day I realized I just am so uncomfortable with this. And the truth of what happened, I think I've told you the story before, is in that time period, I would just leave the office whenever I was really frustrated. I'd take myself to a movie. I'd go to a matinee and people would say, how can you just leave the office in the middle of the day? I'm like, I don't care. They can fire me. I just need to get away. I had three kids, wife in medical school. And one day I went to the movies and the movie was Jerry Maguire. And in the movie, Jerry Maguire, you know, the sports agent has this crisis of consciousness and he writes a manifesto and he gets kicked out of his own thing. And six months after I watched that movie, I left the ad agency. And two years after that, I ended up outside leaving my marriage. Something happened in that moment where I realized I'm responsible for what's happening here. Not all these people around me. Mm -hmm. And it was that moment of consciousness, that moment of going from, instead of just copying all these, these systems and being very successful. I mean, I was very successful. I was mm. paid a lot. I was a partner. I was treated exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. I could go to movies in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't myself. I wasn't really myself. And so what had to happen is I had to stop and say, what of all of this is actually you? And mm -hmm. what do you want to embrace? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really curious about this part that has you coming to even ask the question, what's mm -hmm. me, what's not me? And you mentioned the Jerry Maguire moment, which I think is great, by the way, because uh, over time, I think, you know, maybe film aficionados really poo-poo Jerry Maguire, but it's like, I just rewatched it with my son I don't know, a few months ago. And it's so good. It's just really good. <laughs> And it's this moment that I think hit a lot of people. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you see that. I mean, you know, you said woo-woo. To me, that sounds like it's like divine intervention, you know, that you're, it's, you're going to the movies in the middle of the day and then you see this movie that actually ends up really changing the whole trajectory of your life. I guess my question is, would you have, how do you feel about how you arrived at the level of consciousness to be able to start asking that question. Right. Because a lot of people never either hear it, get the message, let it in, or are willing to ask the question. The, doing the hard work then is a whole other thing, but to ask that question, what's me? What's really me? And what's not? is huge. And right. I, I just want to hear a little bit more about how that came in for you. Well, again, I just want to reiterate that, you know, my truth around this is not the truth. And so different people will decide what makes sense for them. But for me, I think the question's there all the time. I think this is about learning to pay attention. Mm. 
number one. Yeah. And so it's like what I was saying about the parents and, and the capacity is there. And so for me, Jerry Maguire, the sort of movie moment of Jerry Maguire was the straw that broke the camel's back in a way because it, it was sort of an undeniable thing for me. But there were lots of other things pointing at the same spot. So that spot was, I was aware that I was uncomfortable. I like to say there was a lot of friction in my life. And that friction was evidence that I was not in the right position, that something was out of sorts. I think that when life is right, then there's flow. And, you know, there's exceptions to those rules. Bad stuff happens all the time. But for me personally, there was a lot of friction. And I think that the other thing, so I started paying attention to that. And then I had this sort of epiphany moment. There were things inside my relationship that were not healthy at that time. There were things inside my family too. And I knew I needed to change something. At the moment, in that moment, what I did was I changed my job, which was the easiest thing to change. Mm. It turned out I needed to change everything. Mm -hmm. But I began by changing my job. And even that felt like crazy because here I had this um, wife in medical school. I had three small children. I was being paid exceptionally well to be a partner of an advertising agency. And I decided to quit and I didn't have another job. And, um, you know, I went to see the partner. And he said, where are you going? I said, I don't know where I'm going. I don't have a job. He goes, come on, where are you going? I said, I, I really don't know. I just know I can't be here anymore. This isn't the place for me. The value system here, the way I feel here, I don't feel like myself here. And I don't want to become comfortable with this. And he laughed and he said, you'll learn that your ideas about the way work is and such aren't real. And that was good for me because it reinforced, oh yeah, I really should be leaving here. And so I left that job. I ended up in a different job and that different job took me, helped me unpack the part of my relationship. It changed my relationship with my family. A whole series of things had to change. I think the other component, I think one piece is like pay attention. Another piece is like do the smallest thing possible that moves you toward that question, toward answering that question. Don't feel like you have to like do everything at once, but just move toward the answer that you're feeling. I think the other thing you have to do is realize it, that takes courage. I mean, there is no guarantee that the first step you take is going to make the situation feel any better. And so you're kind of trusting in yourself and whatever spirit you sort of believe in. I, I do think that is a moment where I became more in touch with myself mm -hmm. spiritually as well, because I don't sort of believe like in faith, like there's no point in making any decisions because it's all figured out. I mean, I do think we have free will, but I do think that there's energy in the universe. And if you're paying attention, there are opportunities that are, are coming and arriving and departing and you get to tap into them or not. The key thing there, though, is this trust and really learning to tap in and then trust it. Because I know in my own experience, it often feels like, oh, wow, that seems to be true but boy i got a wife in medical school and you know i'm getting paid well and i don't know right i mean it does require some faith some trust some risk tolerance i mean it's that's where it gets hard mm -hmm. to really trust and to be willing to blow up your family and change careers and 
you know, do those hard things. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I'm no hero for doing that. I mean, I do believe it saved me in a way. I have come to recognize that one of the reasons that was happening for me, Brad, is because I was at a breaking point. I was physically becoming somebody I didn't want to be. I was behaving in ways with my family that I knew I didn't want to be. I could just feel that. Yeah. And, And so... I got to a sort of a breaking point. And then staying on that path was hard because there wasn't a lot of support. Like as I started creating disruption in my life, most people are like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Like, I, we thought you were that nice guy. Yeah. You know, kept it all together. And right. Like, and what? Right. And then there's that part of you that feels like, well, am I just being self-indulgent? Like, yeah. Am I making myself the center of the universe here? Am I some kind of narcissist? Like, right. what is this? Like, right. okay, I, so I don't have everything. It's not all perfect. Right. Like, come on, get over it. <laughs> Yeah, that inner dialogue, which frankly begins with you as a child, where basically you're told, well, all these other things outside of you are the things you're supposed to be paying attention to and accomplishing and achieving and relating to and whatever you're thinking or whatever. Like, we're not really all that interested in it, Mm -hmm. you know, like, because we need you to become Mm -hmm. us. We need you to become part of this. Boy, is that true. And, and, you know, we're going to just, I don't know, weave and wind and and it'll (laughs) hopefully, I'm enjoying the conversation. (laughs) Hopefully others will too. But I'm curious about that piece right there, the societal piece, Mm -hmm. the people then being unhappy with you and what's he doing? And, you know, we like the old version better yeah, I guess, you know, what I heard you say is like, when you know, you know, that maybe sometimes it's a rock bottom, or maybe sometimes it's just so difficult to live in your own skin anymore that you have to make the change and you're willing to face all of that friction mm-hmm. from the outside world because living authentically or stepping into your truth is just too powerful to ignore anymore. I, I don't know. Maybe it's not that obvious. Maybe it still requires courage. You know, I don't know. Maybe you could speak to it. Well, I think it, you know, again, it depends on, I'm sure every person's experience of going through some kind of disruptive transition, transformation is different. For me, it began kind of with this first break of work and then this much more significant break inside my family. Mm-hmm. And there's an example of like what I chose to do when I said to my wife, I don't think I can be married any longer. I, I love you, but I, I, but, and I love my children, but there's no intimacy here. This isn't the relationship I want to have my whole life. I don't know who I am any longer. You know, that's inherently a selfish act. That wasn't better for my children. You know, like I'm talking about my parents vis-a-vis me. Well, you know, that didn't help my seven-year-old daughter very much for me to do that in that moment. But I also, some part of me felt like I need to be me. They need to know that in life, it's okay. You make decisions to be you to figure that out. Mm -hmm. You should, I made a commitment. When I got married, I made a commitment. I took vows and made a commitment. I've tried to honor that commitment in other ways. I've tried to be honorable, even as I disassembled that particular commitment about being married. I mean, And, you know, I'm fortunate that fast forward 25 years and I think of my, I think of Melanie, my children's mother, as my oldest friend. I mean, we Mm -hmm. went to high school and we had three children together and I still see her on a regular basis and I still love her. I'm very lucky in that regard that I was able to, 
because it wasn't that way when we first got divorced. There was a lot of disruption and pain and anger and resentment and things to process. And we both had some responsibility for what happened. I just initiated something. And that disrupted my children's lives for the next 10, 15 years. And again, my job then is to not pretend I didn't, but to say, okay, I kind of threw a hand grenade in here and there's damage. You got some work for the next like let's say rest of your life <laughs> to recognize you created damage and are you going to keep showing up for these people you damaged do who you love so that they can make sense of this and as they move forward it's not haunting them they're not wondering what happened you're being honest about that and so in that respect i don't think it gets easier it's just that you are who you're supposed to be and so that's better yeah, I, I think, though, it's really important what you're saying for parents to hear and people to hear. You know, I can imagine that you making the decision to continue to show up for your children despite whatever damage maybe you caused. And I think you're probably being hard on yourself, but addressing the fact that when parents get divorced, it's very difficult on children. And even if it's the right thing, it's very disruptive and hard and it's going to leave an impact on them that they are going to have to work through. And that might include anger or upset or their own conditioning, addictions, whatever it may be. And you have chosen to face that and to continue to show up in it, knowing that you had a role in it and the consequences are going to be hard. But it's the way through to hopefully getting what's best for your children mm -hmm. and for you, right? Yeah. I mean, you could just, I don't know, go have a drink and say, oh, well, and you know, go on with your life. But you're choosing to step into it and show and go back in a sense and own it and try to love from the place of consciousness that you're at today. And I think that's really important and commendable. Well, like I said, when in talking about my own parents, our parents are a point of reference for us our entire lives. Mm -hmm. I'm still a point of reference for my children. I see them now. They, I have, you know, um, children who have children. So it gives me another perspective as I watch them become parents and see their children looking at them. And this is natural. So the question is, becomes, what happens when they're looking at you? I remember when my son played Little League and you'd have these parents on the sideline or like when they were on swim team in particular. That's always great because the kid's like, you know, 100 yards away from you underwater and the parent's like, come on, don't do this, Johnny, don't do this. <laughs> and I, somewhere along the line, a coach said to gather the parents up and said, hey, listen, here's all you have to do. When your child looks at you from the field, be looking at them. You don't have to say anything. They're just looking to see if you're looking. Mm -hmm. They're looking to see if you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. They don't want your advice. Mm. They want your attention, your mm. love. They want that sunshine. Mm -hmm. I knew only one thing. My whole life, I've only known one thing with certainty, and that was I wanted to be a father. So for me to leave the house where my kids were and move around the corner and live in a different apartment and for a period of time, they lived in one city and I lived another until I was able to ultimately have the children live with me as my ex-wife then went through her medical residency. But I always thought about that. I thought like, okay, presence is the most powerful gift a parent gives a child. 
Presence is the most powerful thing anybody gives somebody who they love. Presence isn't advice. Presence isn't a solution. Presence is presence. Mm-hmm. And especially in a love relationship, it comes already with all the energy that is required. And I remember when my, when my kids were, were getting ready to move to Cleveland, I was in Columbus. My seven-year-old says to me, Daddy, I need a picture of you. I said, well, why do you need a picture of me? And she said, so I don't forget what you look like. Mm. You know, like, that's what I did. Mm. I created that moment. Mm. Not some other person. So I'm like, if I want to run away, I'm like, oh, the world, how did I get stuck in this? And all my, like, no, I made the decision that created the moment where my seven-year-old daughter is asking me for a picture of myself so she doesn't forget me. Like, talk about gut-wrenching. And so, like, to... Uh, but I think this is, you know, like what you and I have learned about the practice in general, to sit with the suffering, to sit with the pain, like it, it just to acknowledge it dismantles it in a way. Yeah. Light doesn't do anything to darkness except arrive and then the darkness disappears. And I think this is what I mean when I say attention or presence. And I think it applies in all these different aspects of our lives, but particularly in parenting where we're so fueled by our love and our mm. knowledge mm-hmm. to sort of clear the path for them. Mm. You know, like, come on, guard the... <laughs> oh, you're yeah. to go, you're like, we are going <laughs> to supercharge your experience here. Like, oh, oh. if only I had that, you don't know how lucky you are. You know, like all that stuff. Yeah. And really, yeah, they just want attention and companionship. Yeah. I, I'm just hearing Norman Shub, <laughs> you know, screaming... <laughs> Oh, what? You, he used to say, you know, you're going to impart all of your parent, parental wisdom on this kid right now in the car while he's got five minutes before the game starts. You know, that's what you're going to do is give him all your wisdom. And uh, you're right. Sometimes well, there's nothing to be said. It's just presence. Maybe that's more yeah. important than anything. Yeah. So you've arrived at knowing a lot, learning a lot. And I get, you know, this is your experience. This is what's true for you. And I think that's really important. I do think it can be helpful for other people too. There's a lot of wisdom that's been gained through this experience. Mm -hmm. And the part about you feeling the pain of your seven-year-old saying that she wanted a picture of you, that's real. And I think it's important that like you said, like you can't hide from that. You know, I think radical acceptance, right? right. You know, and, and yeah. it talks about the shadow that will just keep following you, right? You have to step into it and feel it. And then also, if you don't make that decision, right? If you don't make the decision that this isn't the marriage for you, you're also doing probably more damage. Yeah. So there's something about, you know, that too, that, right, you, you did something hard, but I don't know. But again, I don't even need the other half of that. I, I mean, I appreciate that and I understand that, that thought process, but I don't need off the hook, you know, by saying, well, if I'd stayed, I might have, I mean, I felt like some part of me would die or I would do something that I would regret. I would become unfaithful in my marriage. I would be physical with one of my children at a point of frustration. I mean, I, who knows? But I just had a sense that bad things were going to come of this. And, and I've always had, it began in my childhood, I've had my own battle with my desire to be around. You know, like I, I, as a child, I thought, oh, I mean, if I just killed myself, then they'd pay attention. 
Like I would have that childhood fantasy where you, you're gone and they're all at your funeral going, no, we should have paid, we should have paid more attention, you know? And through my life, there are times, certainly times where I've just thought, oh man, if I could just reach the light switch, I just, I just flip it right now. Like, why am I dealing with all this? You know, and then I think, hold on a second. Who are the people I love? What do I love about life? Okay, that's better. And so for me, I sensed there was kind of darkness down a path. It wasn't about my marriage. It wasn't about this other person. It was about me. All of it was about me. And this is why I think I have really, through all my experiences, whether it's in parenting or in starting and failing at businesses or any of these sorts of things, I mean, I do think we're communal creatures. And so we're doing all this stuff in relationship to other people. But the only common denominator in everything you're going to do in your entire life is you. And so the question is, are you coming to it as your best self? And not like, what am I going to accomplish in this moment? What am I going to accomplish in this job? What's this thing going to deliver to me? Like, to me, I want to work on the common denominator. The common denominator is me always. And so that's not a selfish act. That's like wanting to show up as the best instrument I can be as a living, breathing, conscious human being on this particular day with whatever is going to come. I become, as, a, as I do that work, I'm much less concerned with what's coming through the door. Mm-hmm. It's coming through the door. And if I'm the version of me I want to be, I'm going to be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be interesting. It's going to, be, it's going to deliver something to me and then there'll be another day. Instead of me like thinking my life is about like pursuing something, accomplishing something, proving something, leaving a legacy, da 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 da. Hopefully, my legacy is whatever somebody experiences when they're sitting with me and they have that sense of Christopher's presence and they're like, oh, that's, well, there's something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and having known you and watched you in recent years figure out who you are mm-hmm. and what it is that you want to do and not want to do. And you've been trying things and feeling into them and experiencing them and adjusting and continuing to tweak. How busy do I want to be? And <laughs> you know, what work do I want to do? And how do I want to engage in this? I guess what I have witnessed is and, and I know it's very true for me too. This is not a straight line. No. It's not like, well, you had the Jerry Maguire moment and now you're going to be this and right. do it that way. You have continued to have to be in the world, play with things, and course correct. Oh, and, and maybe you could just speak to what you've been doing to figure that out. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Brett. Part of it is in that decision somewhere in that decision where I decided the journey was about a practice of, of uh, becoming and being just a practice of being Christopher. I realized it's what also wasn't the linear, like this whole notion that I thought of that life, you, you get, you're born and then you live and then you die. And it's this linear thing and you're young and then you get old or you, you're, you know, you start with nothing and then you become an adult and you build something like I, that whole linear thing I threw out the window and all I see are these set of circles that turn back on themselves and things begin and end, begin and end, begin and end and getting comfortable with that beginning and ending has made it easier for me to just sort of recognize that everything I'm doing is going to end and not worry about that. And so I'm not trying to deliver a particular ending. I'm just trying to experience what there is for me in this 
thing, whether it's, oh, I'm going to buy a warehouse and work with Alex Bandar and Franklinton to create you know, the next generation of the idea foundry and then, oh, it's going to become part of gravity or, oh, I'm going to you know, start a market on Martha's Vineyard or, oh, I'm going to start a, an audiobook company and see what happens and I help build it and you know, we get some patents and it's a lot of fun and it stops being fun for me and I leave and 10 years later, it's sold to Spotify. Like All these things have a life of their own and then I'm participating in some aspect of it. It's not mine. It's life happening constantly all the time. And so I think a piece of what this notion of it not being like a perfect straight line and linear and like, oh, if you just do this, all these nice things will follow. It's like life is full of unexpected things. All the more reason for me to be the best version of me so that when the unexpected happens, I'm prepared for that. And when something that other people would call good happens, I don't take it personally, just like I don't take the bad stuff personally. It's like, oh, today this happened and I enjoyed it. Or today this happened and that was harder for me. Let me pay attention to it. What do I take out of it for the next thing that's about to happen? And it's given me a a kind of peacefulness. I think about my practice as being present, being peaceful, and being purposeful. So the present part is about paying attention. The peaceful part is about being okay with whatever's going to come, like not let my emotional charge get too high or low one way or another, not take too much credit, not take too much blame like for what's happening in the world. And then, but to remain purposeful, like I'm not a monk sitting under a tree hoping for enlightenment. I'm a human being living in the world. While I do say I'm a human being, there is doing to do. There's activity. How am I going to be with my grandchildren? What are the things I want to do that engage my mind, my creative um, instincts? Like I'm writing a book. I want to write poetry. I'm building a business. I'm going to start this. I'm going to close that. Like this is the fun, you know, like these are, this is the material of life. My goal is to try to be conscious through all of it, not get stuck in any one thing as the answer, but just recognize, oh, you know, being myself while engaging in all these fun things life has to offer, all these interesting, rich things life has to offer. That's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. That's the destination. And it arrives every day. Mm. Well, how important, and I want to put a link in the notes to the book Mm -hmm. because it's wonderful. And And I know you and the thought, and we've talked about this, you know, I was especially struck by the selection of the paper, you know, (laughs) the detail that went into you creating your book. And you mentioned poetry. I'm wondering how important, and you had an, you had a history in, in advertising Mm -hmm. and you've started multiple companies, the creation process, the Mm -hmm. importance of, of creating things. And you mentioned friction earlier. I actually just heard uh, Dan Sullivan at Strategic Coach talk about how there's, his language is, there's unique ability, which is really the, you know, you called it flow, the things that you just love to do that you're really great at. So you're either in your unique ability and everything else is friction. And somebody challenged him from a creative standpoint because when you first start creating something, anything, you might not be that good at it. There could be a lot of, creative resistance. Mm -hmm. It could feel like friction. And so I'm curious about this creative piece of you that feels very much you, maybe more so than anything. Yeah. And 
how you've stepped into that and the process of stepping into that. And maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on the book too. Mm -hmm. I do think that in in discovering what was innately me, I I realized I'm a maker. I like to make things. It's one of the reasons why when I had to make money and I ended up in, in sort of advertising, there was something creative about that. And I always had good relationships with people who were creative, who were pure creative designers and writers in, in that world. And then when I left that world, I wanted to create my own businesses. I didn't really want to run them. I just kind of wanted to start them. I liked that creative moment, that spark of putting things together and seeing what's possible. I was a collector of words for my whole life. I mean, I do think language matters. I think there's nuance in how we talk about things and explain things, and there's power in that. It's, you know, we're verbal creatures and we're storytellers by nature. So we're telling ourselves stories and telling other people stories. And those two things, I think, have been threads that were a part of me all along. I just didn't quite know how to make them my everyday activity. They become your hobbies. Like I never played golf, but I, I journaled and wrote poetry with my time. And I think that process of making hard decisions to move toward the version of me I wanted to to embrace also gave me a roadmap for how to t- unlock some of this creativity to say, okay, as you say, it's hard to, it's hard to bring something to life out of nothing. People think, what are you crazy? You see something there? I don't see anything. So I think a creative person and an entrepreneur are very similar in the sense that they start with something blank and they have in their mind a vision that flows through them. And most people look at it and say, I don't have any sense of like, what do you, what do you see? You're, you're crazy. So I think there's that moment where you have to just trust yourself mm-hmm. and then you have to work through the early resistance. Of, it's an iterative process. Any act of creativity is inherently iterative. So you have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to not succeed right away, I guess, is a better way of putting it. And um, so there's some resilience and persistence that I think that most creative people have. And you know, I think the other thing for me is I had to divorce myself from am- any ambition around my creativity. I didn't want my creativity to become something professional that then I was seeking recognition for or, oh, now, now you can go and, you know, do X because you've written poet poems or now you, you've written a little book. And so like, where are you going to publish it? And what are mm-hmm. you going to do? It's a, for me, it, they're very personal. The writing and making, creative making is very personal. Mm-hmm. The, the business and place making, like you and I both, you know, enjoy making spaces. You do it at a scale much bigger than me, but I think we both like creating a physical space that's imbued with a feeling and then watching people enter that container mm-hmm. and it come to life the way we imagined it would. Mm-hmm. Gravity is a great example of that. So, I think there are lots of different ways in which that's shown up. The book for me, you know, um, Leaders Lead Themselves First, was some way of taking this personal philosophy we've been talking about, about the importance of choosing to be conscious and then daring to be brave. Like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to myself and then I'm going to do hard things to move toward the part of me that I think is true taking that personal philosophy and then kind of wedding it to the sense of what does it mean to be a leader of other people? Because for the last sort of 20 years, that's been a part of what I've had the privilege to do is be part of teams. And I've been taking notes on this stuff for 15 years. And for some reason, a year ago, I just made space and it sort of came to me and I knew exactly what I wanted it to be. I didn't want it to be 
you know, some big Bible with the five F's for, fulfill, for fulfillment or anything like that. I just wanted to write a very simple meditation on personal leadership that served more as an invitation for somebody who was curious to say, oh, that's an interesting way of thinking about that. Maybe I want to go learn more about it. And because I have an aesthetic kind of mind, I thought I want it to be a very particular way. Mm-hmm. So I don't really want to work through a big publishing house and have some art director tell me how it wants to be. I'm a collector of small books myself. And so I thought, I just want this to be this kind of teeny book that if you saw it at a garage sale 20 years from now, you'd pick it up and it would still feel nice in your hand. And it would be short enough that you'd think like, hmm, that could be interesting. You know, I, that, that's not a big commitment. Mm-hmm. And so it turned out, I, I feel very lucky it turned out exactly the way I, I wanted it to be. And I have some people who've picked it up and read it. It's resonated with them. And so that's been a nice next set of activity. Mm-hmm. And there's more writing that'll follow that, I'm sure now. Yeah, I, I, it speaks to me. And I loved the personal elements. A lot of what we're talking about here, you've expanded upon in the book, you know, the divorce and your career. And, you know, you really do weave your story, your journey into the learning, which I, I personally love to learn that way. And there is something about small and, you know, easy to digest. It's not a huge commitment. That Somebody called it approachable. Approachable, <laughs> right? I mean, that matters to me. I think that's why I love podcast format because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, good. I can, I can digest, you know, 90 minutes, an hour and a half, whatever. For better or worse, you know, I think that matters to people today. The last thing I want to just learn a little bit more about is this idea of detaching from the outcome. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as we've been talking about the conditioning and the stuff that you still have to be aware of and fight against and make sure it doesn't sneak its way in, I know for me, that is still a work for me to do. When I go paint, I am having a hard time detaching from the outcome of the end product. And it isn't, it was initially like, well, I, I need to own a gallery and then I need to have a show and I need to sell, sell art and people. And I'm like, I don't need to do any of that. I started painting because I wanted a creative outlet outside of work to literally move energy. And yet it sneaks its way in where I still care about what it looks like when it's done, that I have some sense of it being good that matters. And it, and that piece is still in part attached to this old part of me that needed to look good or be liked or produce outcomes that were quote successful to please people and my parents in particular. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm wanting to learn a little bit about how you have navigated the detaching from the outcome. Well, again, just for me personally, the best antidote to seeking the approval and affection of others is to love oneself deeply. Mm, Yeah. You know, it sounds like a cliche, but it turns out if you love yourself, it doesn't really quite matter if that like person in the room thinks you're smart. Mm. And if you're comfortable being yourself, 
it doesn't really matter if that person's taller or richer or has more likes on their, their social media account because you're happy being you, living the life you're living and you feel love beginning with yourself. I think so much of people's pain, you know, just emanates from that. And so much activity is in the service of filling the black hole that we carry around inside of us as, as human beings that Part of it, I think, is existential. And then part of it is, you know, the nature of how we're raised and what we were talking about earlier. So I think that a piece of detaching, if, if one truly wants to detach from the outcome, then one has to learn to love himself. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, I joke when I was starting with this book, you know, because my wife, Nancy Kramer, who can be very persistent and she's a great cheerleader for me. She's like, oh, you know, you got to put a URL in the book. Like where are people going to even know how to buy it? I'm like, and I was like, I'm not doing that. You know, I had this whole notion that the only way the book was going to find its way into the world was I was just going to leave it places, which I still do. I just go places and leave the book behind on a coffee table or I was in Powell's bookstore in Portland. I just stuck one on a shelf. I thought that was funny. And, and, but it's also available from places for people who want to buy it. But I, I would say I don't have an ambition for the book, but I have an aspiration for it. Again, the, the power of the word for me, like, yeah, of course I'm human. I would like it to be, I'd like the person who picks it up to, to feel it and go, oh, this, this is lovely. Like I want, I like it when somebody's holding it and they go, I love the feel of this because I designed it to be so it could slip into my back pocket because I carry moleskins in my back pocket. That's how I wanted that book to feel. And when somebody opens it up and reads it and they say, oh, something spoke to me. I'm like, oh, that feels great. Of course, I'm a human being. I appreciate that affirmation. So I aspire for it to be of use to people. But I don't have an ambition for it to be suddenly discovered and then some big publishing house comes and says, let's do a run of a million. And then Mm -hmm. you're suddenly sitting next to Oprah talking about these Mm -hmm. very same things. I'm perfectly happy having done the work of making it come to be. That is the fulfillment part of it for me. I did want it to be a particular way. I mm-hmm. was attached to it feeling a particular way for me because that is me completing a task for myself that I've been carrying around for a long time. I would say, you know, I make these lists every year, do vision day stuff and Say you were to learn you were going to die in a week, what would you do if you were going to learn you were going to die in a day? What would you do? What would you regret? And the only thing that was ever really a regret other than the loss of time with people I love at this stage is, man, I really had this point of view about the world I wanted to put down on a piece of paper so if somebody discovered it, you know, like it would be out there and my children could read it. And so now I've done that. You know, yeah. so. Well, I think it's really great learning and you're right. The love, loving yourself is really key to all of that. To be able to create something is really an expression of you and isn't tied or attached to outcome or something outside of you. It comes back to really being at peace and loving yourself. That has been my work and continues to be my work and is probably going to someday create paintings that I love. <laughs> but well, you know, I, I will say, Brett, you know, you and I have talked about this. Like here you, you one of your canvases is this world of real estate and property development and such. And you've created with your team all sorts of interesting things in your journey through that. It began with family kind of at the start and then you making your own thing 
and it was good enough that it was just your own. And then after a while playing in that sandbox, you're like, hold on a second, that's not good enough. Actually, the things I make have to be an embodiment of me, which brings us to gravity, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, okay, now you're in the midst of still in the same sandbox, still in that same profession, but you can see how even your own conscious development of who you are and who you want to be is showing up in your work because it can't not now. Yeah. Like, because to, do, to not do it that way, to yeah. not have greenhouse or gravity, be an embodiment of what you know yourself to be would be friction, would be pain. So like, it does happen that way. Like, sure. if, if our practice sort of shows up through our work too, um, not just in sort of the practice or just the creative yeah. piece of it. Yeah, well, you're, you're landing exactly where I wanted to go next and kind of wrap up with is our story of gravity and the important role that you have played in gravity from the start through today. And I'm in, I'm incredibly grateful for all of it, especially the gift of the name gravity which mm-hmm. you you gifted to me and i feel like it was a real gift because it has always felt right and it's evolving into um way more than i ever imagined which does feel very um much to me in the woo woo way like beyond it's beyond me it's kind of taking on a life of its own, which is also very freeing and energizing to to continue to step into. But it started with you. I, you know, was working on building communities in a particular way that were filled with the things that I loved and was passionate about. You know, we early on said it was sustainability wellness, creative expression, and impact. And you also were working on a version of that yourself when Mm -hmm. we came together. Yours was called Gravity. So I'd like you to maybe speak to how you and I came together and what your role has been in the creation of this community. Well, first of all, I am not surprised by what Gravity has become and everything, everything beyond a building or a physical construction. Because I think that when you were thinking about all this, you you were looking for a way to create a portal into something much bigger than just the world of real estate. I think that's always been the case for you. I think it's one of the reasons we connected. And you were, as you say, building these very intentional communities. And I was out trying to think about how to create a place that had a, a certain kind of energy and could stand as a as an example to others, that there was a way to live in relationship to one another, what it meant to be a community. And you actually were working on this other, this sort of idea of, of an innovation community center, like you, you, you'd say, it's like the best of what the old Jewish center was, you know, <laughs> like you could do work your mind, you could work your spirits, you could work your heart, you could work your body. And, but for a different generation, like in the heart of the town and like, and not necessarily tied to one tradition and, so I think you were taking what you had done in your intentional real estate, residential community, what you were thinking about in this kind of new communal um, idea. And I was doing my thing. And, and I felt really lucky because I was never going to bring my thing to life. Because as I say, I mean, I'm really an accidental business person. I should just be a writer and, and be doing that kind of work. 
And so I felt really lucky to connect with you because it became clear right away. I mean, I think this was back in 2015 almost. I mean, it was six or seven years ago when we were talking and you had a vehicle to make this happen. And I had some language and ideas. And so I think, you know, we talked a couple of times and then we put a presentation together and we went out and we talked to people in the community. And it felt good to be a partner with Brett Kaufman, who I admired in terms of the work you were doing, the development work, and this idea. I think ultimately when we both were attracted to Franklinton at that period of time, and I do know that the the gravity piece of it, which, you know, the name, that was a word I had been carrying around for a long time. Because I think the idea of gravity, this invisible and yet all-powerful thing that keeps things grounded, um, that helps define the way things interact. Gravity is what keeps the planets from banging into each other and, and people arranged and things from floating off into space. And yet it's invisible. It's kind of like a value system or a belief system. And, and I also, you know, I know you and I had a lot of conversations about like, okay, do, you know, like there was Kaufman development and what's it, what, where, where does ego fit into this and names and whatever. And I think that the idea of it being called something other than 632 Broad Street or whatever naming convention had been around or some made up thing that didn't have meaning in it. I think it just felt right to say, hey, this word, I had even created a presentation for somebody else about the gravity principle. And it just felt right to that it belonged with this project. And you were kind enough to give me a half a dozen different opportunities to <laughs> sort of be involved even more deeply. And I really appreciated that pretty much saying, Hey, the door's open for anything you want to participate in. And so I was lucky enough to go to New York on some of the early design stuff and sit with the guys at Fort on the brand development stuff and watch you begin to tell the story in public. And I think then it became clear that my job was to sort of be a quiet cheerleader on the side and gravity was going to come to life through the Kaufman team. And frankly, through your own kind of persistence to do something very different. I, you know, I just, I drove around Franklinton just before I, I came here. And buildings are buildings. They're just containers. What matters is what people are doing inside of them. And that's the power of gravity that you've invested in what happens inside them. You've covered them in art. You celebrate people You've got not just the usual suspects showing up to do events. You've got all kinds of diverse people coming. You're creating marketplaces. And so for me, I get to feel like just a proud kind of parent. Like, oh, there goes gravity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Most people, if there's anything negative, nobody would know to come to me. And even (laughs) recently being able to take the investment that Nancy and I did at the Idea Foundry and connect it to gravity is just like one more perfect from my standpoint, convergence of opportunity and and creativity. So I feel like an important but small part of the gravity um, journey because the other thing I know is the quality of people you've attracted to help you stand gravity up and keep it operating, that really matters too. Yeah, it does. And I think that the important but small is it, interesting way to look at it. I probably see it a little differently because the importance makes it not small, (laughs) you know, and I feel that way about a number of people in this neighborhood in particular, you know, and I've been 
pretty public every chance I get to acknowledge the yeah, Jim Sweeney's sure. and the Mike Browns and the and the Shermans and, Sherman's and, yeah. and Chris Howe and the guys, the people that were here mm-hmm. before us, those little things. Yeah. Right? A music festival, a event, a art creation, a mural, those things, your white paper, you know, your definition of gravity, you sitting in in the early conversations, you validating things that we both believed in. You know, you need to have that shared experience. And even if it is a brief period of time, even if it's, you know, comes and goes as called upon or needed, it's super important and it's not small at all um, from, to me. And uh, there's a ton of heavy lifting and, and a lot of people involved. And I mean, hell to get a shovel in the ground today yeah, is a yeah. massive effort, right? Everything. But those seeds that were at the early stages to me are incredibly important. And, and you have been a consistent friend and supporter and partner, investor and collaborator. And, you know, for that, I'm extremely grateful and thankful for the opportunity to take this time and really look forward to continuing to see how life unfolds and informs what we do with our time Mm -hmm. and our work and our lives. You know, one thing I just want to say here as we wrap up and I'll give you the, the final word, but all of it has been informative and being in the world and trying the things mm-hmm. is how you end up continuing to unpack or peel back what is you and how you want to spend your time. And I believe, and maybe this is just a projection, but I'm watching you do that. Mm-hmm. And in watching you live and explore and try and find ultimately yourself in the world, it's very inspiring. And you are a a wonderful role model and you're not even trying to do that. (laughs) You know, that's, it's kind of like the book, I think, where it's like, you're not trying to be a role model, but you are. Well, I think you, you raised something that I wanted to mention, which is something I think you and I both try to work on and I think about it in the context of the gravity development and this final thought, which is, you know, I always think of myself as a catalyst. And the idea of a catalyst is something that appears in a moment when it's necessary to make something happen and then disappears. It doesn't sort of ride along. And much of my work in life, other than my parenting and my family life, that's what I've been. I've been a catalyst. I show up for short periods of time and part of helping to make something happen. And then I recede. And at first, it was hard to just recede. I took it personally, like, oh, God, I'm disappearing. I'm not important. Are they there going on? And then I realized, actually, this is who I am. Like, as I've come to terms with the fact that this is actually right for you because you get bored or you get distracted or like, yeah, you could imagine yourself as the CEO of that and the president of that and running that for 10 years. But really, actually, you're just this catalytic component that's moving around and trying to find like-minded people and interesting things to help bring to life and be 
affirmation or resources or whatever in the moment of that, of the birth of something. And there's a kind of humility in that, which is also part of what I hope to practice and hope to embody and hope that people see and recognize is in short order these days that the antidote to all of this celebrity is humility to not have to be seen, to not have to constantly be celebrated. It's enough to know. It's enough to have been. And that's good enough. That's the whole reward. Mm -hmm. And part of the gravity exercise for me, you and I have talked about this, is for me to check my own ego, to not think, oh, well, I'm not there for this. Oh, I could have been doing that because I love it because I love the space and I love the brand and I love the the mission and I love the content. And I'm at, at, at a distance from it for a bunch of reasons. And early on, I was like competitive, even with you. Ah, Brett gets to do these fun things. Like, you know, that's that human part of us, the ego part of us. But then I would just do my practice of like, yeah, but hold on, Christopher. What is truly you? Where do you begin and end? And how do you find peace and love yourself that this is your contribution? And so for me, gravity became, it has become a wonderful practice ground for that. Just like mm-hmm. each new thing is mm-hmm. because I, I do love it so much and I do think it is a really important thing in Columbus, Ohio and in the world as an example of intentional development and the way you talked about the neighborhood. And so mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if, if I can be who I am and still project some sense of humility, you know, not sort of be who I am that takes over, like you said, you know, you almost don't even know you, this is what you're doing. Like you, it's, that actually is a great compliment because that's my hope. My hope is that I, I can be somebody who can have an impact, but then can also just sort of sit back and, and be the parent on the sidelines watching as the game goes on. Mm. Yeah, it's a great place to land. I I think what, comes to me is the work you've done to love yourself mm-hmm. and really trust in you just being you despite what our ego and maybe even more so how the ego is attached to <laughs> the societal righteousness or the I don't know pressure the the way things have been done historically, mm-hmm. you know, the way things have been done historically isn't to step aside. It's to see it all the way through or pick a path or fight for yours or I don't whatever, yeah. you know, right. and you have chosen that that's not you. Well, that's not life, Brett. Life begins and ends. There's joy and pain. There's young and old. Like that is the truth. Yeah. Anybody who fights that is fighting the truth. Yeah. You can want to hold on to your office, mm-hmm. but the guy who everybody loves is the first president who gave it up voluntarily mm-hmm. to set the example of what leadership looked like. Mm-hmm. And that applies everywhere in life. If we keep coming back to the fact that it's going to end, like it's designed to do that. You can build... You can travel to Mars, you can create electric cars, you can accumulate billions of dollars, but I'm telling you something, all of that stuff's going to end. What you think you built into some giant, great company that defined you, it's all going to be gone. Yeah. And so if you're attached to that, instead of 
in service of the life force that says over and over to us in everything we can see that is alive, it will begin and it will end. Like, don't fight the end. Accept the end and then begin again. Accept the end and begin again. And that is really hard because some ends are hard. You know, some ends are final. (laughs) But that's the work, I think. Well, we're going to end there. You know, this has been a longer episode than usual, and I don't know how we'll release it if it (laughs) ends up in parts, but we'll do it again. And we'll begin again because I love being with you and in conversation. It's fun for me, and I think there's a lot there to share, and let's do it again. Thanks so much, Brett. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.